and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you about a program that I launched in January of 2019, earlier this year, where I'm currently coaching 10 corporate executives on their mindset, on how they're showing up at work. These are people that are aged 30 to 60 years old. They are in leadership or management positions in their organizations. Some of these people work in real estate. They work in finance. They work in sports. They work in tech, government contracting. It's really a diverse group of people, and I love coaching them. So the idea of the cohort is that I'm coaching 10 of these executives at one time. All of the coaching is one-on-one, and it occurs over a six-month span. So it's about every other week for an hour. And at the end of our coaching, there's 12 sessions. They're going to come together for a retreat. It's going to be an all-day retreat that takes place just outside Washington, D.C. The retreat space is actually on the same mountain as Camp David. It's an amazing spot. It's a couple hundred acres. There's no cell service. Uh, There's a creek. There is uh, a lot of space to just explore and just to have meaningful and deep conversations. So the idea of the cohort was to bring all these people together to coach them one-on-one and have them connect with each other. And really it's where I turn into a facilitator. And so the cohort one has gone really well and it's gone so well that we're actually launching a second cohort in late June, early July with the retreat in December. So if you are a corporate executive and you are a lifelong learner, you're super curious, you're driven, you're competitive, you want to get better and you've already had some success in your career and you think this is something that would be a good fit for you, feel free to reach out to me. My email is brian at blevinson.com. Once again, brian at blevinson.com. I'd love to have a conversation with you. There are people that are outside the DC area and we leverage Zoom video to have those conversations. So if this is something that you'd love to explore, feel free to send me a note and would love to chat with you about what you're up to and what your vision is for your career. 
Now to today's guest. So speaking of careers, Tom Penn has had quite an illustrious career in the sports industry. He started out uh, his relationship with sports playing basketball in high school. He went on to swim at the University of Notre Dame and become a captain of the swim team. And from there, he went on to law school. And after law school, he decided to get into the NBA. He was sort of hard-pressed on finding his way into the NBA, and he ended up finding his way to the Portland Trailblazers, where he became an elite executive. He also served as a high-ranking executive in the basketball operations of the Memphis Grizzlies, where he worked alongside Jerry West, who is a legend both on and off the court for his mind and his ability and his talent, and is is actually the logo of the NBA. So we're going to talk about that conversation And Tom also worked for ESPN for a number of years as an analyst and has done continued to do TV work where he currently works for Turner. And today, Tom runs LAFC, which at the time of this recording is the best MLS soccer team uh, in the league. And he will get into how he ended up doing that and what he tries to establish from a culture standpoint at LAFC. So this conversation is rich in nuance. It's rich in story. Uh, Tom is somebody who will share his journey and the steps along the way. And so without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Tom Penn. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We were introduced by one of our past podcast guests, Phil Weber, uh, Coach Phil, Scout Phil, Philosopher Phil, Poet Phil. Uh, I think he wears many hats. Um, But Phil is a basketball guy and has has been in basketball for a number of years. And I asked Phil, hey, who's somebody who you think I'd enjoy chatting with? And he mentioned you. So after a couple of texts and emails and and follow-ups, uh, he he connected us, and I'm excited to chat with you. I've enjoyed watching you on TV over the years and uh, learning about the salary cap and uh, the draft and all that good stuff, but I'm really excited to learn more about you, the person, and how you've come to be you. Uh, so where I'd love to start is to just find out about what life was like for you as a kid, uh, family, upbringing, sports, all that good stuff. So give us some insight into what you were like as a kid. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, yeah, I was born and raised in Peoria, Illinois, which is where my parents still live. So the saying back then was, uh, if it plays in Peoria, it'll play anywhere because Peoria was the test market capital of the world. It was sort of a classic representation of what America was supposed to be with the diversity of races and socioeconomic backgrounds. And it was the first test market when that became a thing. So I give you that because I, I really come from the heartland of the country and the place that was deemed to be the most America-like. Um, yeah, and a family, but my parents still together, the uh, two siblings, I'm the oldest of three. So we had just a killer, terrific family unit. Wasn't perfect, but it was pretty darn good. Very healthy as a, for a kid to grow up. And um you know, it was great. Loved it. Played a lot of sports as a kid and then ended up, I went to Notre Dame uh, for college and went on to law school and then went back to Peoria and started my early professional career there. So for me, it started in Peoria, still have tentacles back there. Um, you know, a much bigger family. I came from a big Lebanese family with 47 first cousins on my mom's side alone. And, uh, you know, so that was kind of a, from a a different era, you know, there's no more of that. 
And, and you know, what values did mom and dad pass down to you and your siblings? Uh, we were blessed with uh, a whole lot of love from them for starters. So, you know, as you get older and you get more involved in, um, you know, parenting your own self and then dealing with people that are on a search for uh, self-improvement and otherwise, you, you, you learn that a lot of people, including a lot of really successful people, have scars from when they grew up. So the first thing... I've said to my parents is you didn't leave me with any scars. <laughs> There's nothing serious here. There wasn't any, that's number one was just a terrific loving environment, uh, which I try to carry through with my family. Um, and then hard work and discipline and ambition and, uh, you know, everything that goes with it. Honesty. I like to, you know, some lessons from when I was young. I remember, I'll never forget my dad and I were shopping once and, he uh, walked out with a bag full of clothes, got to the car, realized they didn't charge him for two of the shirts. And we had to walk all the way back in the store to pay for the two shirts. Uh, you know, lessons like that just sort of stick with you. Um, and hopefully I'm living up to, the, to, uh, to those ideals. And you mentioned mom was of Lebanese descent. Where was dad from? And was your mom first-generation immigrant or were her parents did her parents come over as well so my mom's third generation but was a hundred percent Lebanese so she uh, my, my great-great-grandfather was the original Lebanese settler in Peoria and there's a huge Lebanese community you know the mayor's Lebanese all the number of the politicians a lot of the really successful folks in Peoria are still Lebanese or are Lebanese um, and my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather started that. So that side of the family was the most uh, dominant in terms of the traditions and whatnot and the upbringing because I had 47 first cousins. My mom's one of six kids, um, all of which were in Peoria. We uh, would have, you know, family meals and, and a lot of connectivity with that family. My dad is English and Irish, a splash of German in there, but more of an American mutt. Um, and uh, came from a smaller family and, and had, uh, and he was, the, my mom's generation was the first generation to marry outside the Lebanese community. So, uh, a, a few of her siblings did as well. So we were the first 50 percenters. And, uh, you know, to this day, I've got a strong connectivity with my Lebanese heritage because of my affiliation with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which was founded by and still operated by the Lebanese in America. Um, so, so that's when people say, what are you? I say, I'm Lebanese. I always get a kick out of asking people, what are you? And so, so many don't know, you know, they don't, they don't, don't even know or don't have anything they really identify with as their, as their heritage. Um, particularly younger people, you know, when I ask now out here in Los Angeles, they just say, well, I'm, you know, they, some blend of American. Um, so I consider that a blessing knowing sort of from where I came. And you mentioned playing sports as a kid, what sports were you into? What were your hobbies? What were you like as a teenager? Yeah. So I was a really talented basketball player. My problem was I peaked in sixth grade. So uh, than me, I peaked in third grade. So you, you, you lasted longer than I did. Yeah. Right. So everybody started growing after that, and I didn't. So when I went to high school, I actually played my freshman year and then 
wasn't any fun. I was just wasn't playing on the freshman team. So I actually jumped back to what I spent my summers doing. So my summers, uh, I swam and was a you know swimmer as a kid growing up, and uh, played golf and tennis and you know some of the country club sports actually. So I switched and I started playing golf in high school, and I also swam. So I and I was better at swimming, and had a pretty good run through high school to where I peaked at my senior year and you know, made the state and at least had a little bit of a story to tell. So when I went to Notre Dame for college, I actually walked on and, uh, you know, successfully made the Notre Dame swim team, which I always say is other than the day I was married and the day the kids were born, that was the most important singular moment of my life was the day I made the Notre Dame swim team because it put me in a totally different uh, peer group and an experience at Notre Dame as a, as a varsity athlete with just an unbelievable group of guys. And it really sent me on a different trajectory for the rest of my life. I'm convinced of that. Why? Uh, I just, I had access to a whole different group of people, all these different experiences. Um, for me, athletics was a big, and athletic achievement was a big part of the whole college experience, it gave us more of a purpose beyond just doing well in school and having a lot of fun. You know, we, we all did that. We did really well with our schoolwork and then had a blast. Um, but layered on top of it had this challenge of just working our asses off and doing everything we could to achieve. And we had a pretty good team. And, um, you know, just in terms of the self-confidence it gave me going forward, in terms of really the story, the story, the narrative of my life, you know, it just was a different story to be able to tell. And, you know, those guys are still my best buddies all around the country, just all kicking ass in their own way and, uh, and or having their own struggles with, within, with their families or with their personal lives. And we all sort of ride that together, which is still an incredible blessing. When I work with swimmers and I work with wrestlers and I work with long distance runners cross country and track or cross country track and I work with American football, I hear common threads in that all those sports require some relationship with pain, physical, yeah. like physical pain and pushing your body. And then they're also, they also have these elements of being monotonous and uh, repetition and just doing the same thing over and over again. Did you love swimming? What was your relationship like with swimming? Yeah, it's funny. When you started that, I jumped into my head. was painful. Um, the thing I loved was the camaraderie and the fellowship and the brotherhood of going through it together. And swimmers in general, if you still to this day, if you survey sort of the, the, the fraternal nature of that, that group, those guys have a blast together. And I really think the hard times are what bring you together. So if you go to any college campus, you're going to find swimmers or this super tight niche group that, that just have a blast typically kind of crazy party a lot, but they work so hard. And I really think that when you have your head in the water, you can't communicate with each other. It's six 30 in the morning and you're walking through the snow to get to practice and you lift in the afternoon and come back for a second practice. You know, you just work your ass off together 
uh, that just brings you closer and closer. You know, it's like, it's like you're going through, uh, some sort of boot camp together. Uh, it's just an extended version of that, uh, in a college setting. It was, it was great. So I didn't, I enjoyed the swimming cause I got better at it and you know, improved and had a little bit of an impact in the later years with the team. Uh, but what, what I really valued, as I said, was just the brotherhood of it all. And when you're in high school and you're having some success in the pool, were you considering going to colleges for swimming or was Notre no. Dame? Yeah. Yeah, no, it was a different experience in high school. I went to a small Catholic high school. We, hit, we didn't even have a pool. We went to the YMCA to train. I was by far the best swimmer on the team, and it was uh, a different experience. So I, I went – it was – my college decision was all about sort of academic and other reasons – had nothing to do. I wasn't recruited. I wasn't, you know, like I said, I walked on. It was just sort of a bonus. I didn't even know if I wanted to swim in college. It sort of depended on the fit. I was just open to it and took a run at it. And then when, when, uh, when I knew I was on the fence, right on the borderline of making the team, you know, then I really wanted it. I really, cause I really liked the guys and I could see that it was just going to create a different experience altogether. And, um, and I didn't know if I was going to make it or not. In fact, I probably shouldn't have. But I can remember the exact uh, set that, that got where I caught coach's attention. He told me this later. You know, there was one day, one practice, one particular challenging thing we were doing. And I just kind of hit, hit the flow point and got rolling and caught his attention. And he admitted later that that was, that was sort of what put me over the top. So, you know, it was these little moments in life that, make a huge difference. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. Catholicism. Did you grow up with that in the household or was that more school? And then, you know, going to a university like Notre Dame, how was religion woven into your family's framework? Yeah, it was both. I mean, I grew up and went to uh, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. You know, we were church, went to church every Sunday, all that sort of stuff. I think what solidified it or evolved it for me was going when I went to college because I went to University of Notre Dame and so you took theology as part of the curriculum you had to take a couple of classes and I had some awesome professors that were just really thought-provoking and and really cool um in fact you know the, the best professor I ever had happened to be uh, a theology professor and then our team it was part of the culture of the team too, and the dorm life there. When you you know you lived in a dorm, you had mass on Sunday night at eleven o'clock, and then pizza afterwards, kind of thing. Uh, that was always a cool experience because it was your true peer group. And then the same with our team. You know, before every meet and all that, we just started. It was woven into normal life there. So in those adult formative years, that was still a part of things with me, which was great. And you mentioned going off to law school. Was that something you were interested in doing before you got to Notre Dame while you were there? When did, when did law school become an interest for you? Yeah, my dad's a criminal defense attorney. So I grew up with that as a, you know, an obvious mentor and a, something to look at and shoot for. So when I uh, decided on my undergrad major, I ended up majoring in economics because what I wanted to do was get something sort of business focused, but still 
in the arts and letters school so that I'd prepare for law school. I was always planning to go to law school. Um, and so that's what happened was just, if I had it to do over again, I would have gotten a straight, more of a traditional business degree. Uh, but it worked out, it worked out fine. And you mentioned this notion that you had a great childhood. There wasn't a lot of trauma. And I agree with you. The more that I work with people, the more that you just know that people have stuff that occurs in their childhood that is not necessarily healthy. And I think there are yeah. some people that leverage that and use it in some ways to thrive. And then there are others that are really tormented by it. But here you are, you've got this, this upbringing. And then you go to swimming where swimming does require you know, facing adversity and, and not just facing adversity, but you also signed up as a walk-on. So you didn't have to be there financially. It wasn't something that was providing for you at a university like it is for a lot of division one athletes. And you're going toward this experience. And I understand the camaraderie of it. I understand the um, idea of having an identity attached to it. But talk about how you leverage those four years. It sounded like by the end of your time there, you were making an impact on the team. What was your mindset like to get better and grow and improve uh, in the pool? Same as in anything. I was just uh, focused on being the best I could be at that, improving. You know, I, I wasn't very good. You know, I barely made it. Um, you know, by the end, I was, I had some university records and was the captain of the team. And, you know, we were the best team that had ever been at Notre Dame. Uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't top, top around the country, you know, the way but that Tom, Notre Dame. Fill, fill, in that, fill in that gap for me, because here you are as a walk-on where you're barely making the team. And then by your senior year, you're breaking records and you're a captain. What transpires between when you started and, and when you finished? It's a whole lot of work for starters. You know, it was a lot of, lot of training, a lot of work. I was a late bloomer physically, so I think I was playing catch up that way. And then I didn't come from any kind of established program, significant program. So it took me a while to catch up. And then I switched strokes as well. I was a, I was a sprinter and it was sort of a cloudy murky group of sprinters my first two years and then my junior year they needed somebody to swim breaststroke and all of a sudden I found out I could do that so uh that just put me in a different lane literally in a different lane in the pool and uh and I ended up having success that way um and having more of an impact and then I just you know I think I I got stronger and just continued to improve which was cool and being a captain, were were you a leader? Were you someone who wanted to be a captain? Was that important to you? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that one's voted on by the team. So um, it was, uh, if I'm honest back then, yeah, it was something that wasn't like I was a reluctant captain or anything like that. I was certainly willing to do it and happy to do it and felt honored you know, by my, my, my buddies. And how did you approach leadership back then? What was your style? Um, I was more vocal. I, I think I tried to be lead by example. I, I was, I'm more of a rah-rah kind of vocal type leader uh, at, at, at that phase too. As the, cause I went on to coach in law school. I was an assistant coach, uh, grad assistant at Illinois while I, you know, did my second, third year of law school. And 
you know, some leaders are, are more quiet lead just by being the top performer on their team. I was a little bit more vocal. Um, you know, they're all right. It just sort of depends on which way you approach it, but it was, uh, it was a cool experience, man. It was a lot of fun. And what was it like for you to coach? So you're, you just finished up in Notre Dame. Now you're in law school first year, then your second year, you start becoming a grad assistant and coach. What was that transition like to being out of the pool and coaching while you're in law school? Yeah, it was great. A ton of my energy went towards it. I mean, by second year of law school, I had figured a lot of it out, I thought, and didn't take, it didn't require as much time in terms of the day-to-day grind of studying and all that. So I, I always do better when I have multiple things that I'm engaged with and, and multiple places I can put my energy. So that was, uh, got me reestablished with a team. Uh, I was working with a really interesting guy who was the head coach who was a world-class swimmer in his own right back in the day in the seventies and was the lead singer in one of the more popular bands on campus. So, you know, it just plugged me into a, a different uh, network of people on campus outside of the law school itself and ended up being a really, really fun, rewarding two years. At that point, are you at all considering coaching or are you like, Hey, I went to law school. Let's go, let's go use this, this degree that I spent the last three years earning. Yeah. It's interesting. So in law school, I ended up having summer associate positions with big firms in Chicago. So I did the big city law firm deal in Chicago two summers in a row. And at the end of that, I knew I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go into with a big firm and just be on the track to be in partner and all that. And I wanted to do something sports related. So my goal coming out of law school was to work in pro sports. I just didn't have the connections to do it. I actually still have the box of rejection letters sitting in my uh, attic you know, the old school rejection letters with the Denver Nuggets colorful logo on the top and so on and so forth. I kept them because um, I, you know, sent out whatever it was, 28 or 30. I don't know how many teams there were then. I can't remember, but I got that many back. Uh, and then I did briefly consider coaching or staying involved in athletics. And then what happened was my dad was sort of smart enough to say, don't do that. Come, come, you know. And he just said, come back and try cases with me for a couple of years. He, as a, at the time, was just the, the man in central Illinois as a criminal defense attorney, big time trial lawyer. And he uh, administered the public defender's office where he had a bunch of independent contractors work, working for him. So he had a spot come open in the felony division and he invited me to come back and try cases for a couple of years as his assistant public defender. And he had always done that. He had brought kids from out of law school right into felony positions. So it wasn't like I was the first one to do that. And I thought, yeah, why not? It's, that'd be great. And so that kicked off a six year run where I worked. The best part of it is I worked side by side with my dad, which was really cool. And have you, have you worked with your father at all? Not really. I mean, here and there, little, little yeah. things, but it is interesting as, as I've gotten older and seen him in a work environment, uh, there's actually like a newfound respect. I think you kind of go through like, Oh, that's my dad. Right. And then you get into a space where maybe you become more friends and yeah. then in a work environment, I just saw him in a, a different light. I've, I've seen him in a, in enough positions where I've been on phone calls and 
heard him speak. Um, it is, it's, it's a fascinating thing. What was it like for you? Yeah, it was cool. It was just, you know, we were shoulder to shoulder side by side for what, you know, he said for two years and it ended up being six and I had the flexibility. So not only did we try a bunch of cases and I tried, I think 22 jury trials to verdict, um, you know, all kinds of stuff, murder, rape, super big drug cases, everything really. I, uh, so I had that ex those experiences that were unique and unforgettable. Um, but then just day to day, just sort of that living your life with somebody who's right there with you, sort of meal to meal is, is I've always enjoyed that as well. You know, it's always easier to ride through life with somebody right there, their shotgun with you or vice versa, because you can share those experiences together. So that was, that was time, you know, an incredible blessing. And then he gave me the flexibility to uh, pursue my sports dream still because I was making enough money and, you know, he's a boss that understood that's what I wanted to do. So he said, take as much time as you want to do that. And so that gave me the entrepreneurial spirit and energy and investment time to uh, try to make that happen. You mentioned that you like to do a lot of different things. Uh, to keep you engaged and you get energy from doing a lot of different things. Was dad more of a stay in his lane type guy? And it sounds like he became the best at what he did. Um, was he more stay in lane or was he also entrepreneurial and had his hands in different things as well? No, he was a, uh, as he says, a one trick pony. He stayed totally in that lane and is a, you know, almost exclusively criminal defense work in the years that I was with him and since. Where do you think that comes from for you, the desire to play in different buckets and in different spaces? Oh, I think I get that more from my mother, for sure. So she teaches, she's taught leadership uh, to high school kids and at other levels. She uh, got her degree late in life after we were, uh, after she helped us get our degrees. She went back and got hers, got her master's degree, and she's just really, really bright. And, uh, has a degree in organizational development and as I said taught uh, leadership courses and so I think through my whole upbringing I got that whole side of things from her because of her innate curiosity about it and her uh, desire to pass those sorts of ideals along. Very cool and I want to go back to that box of rejections so it sounded <laughs> like you applied to all the NBA teams is that right it was 28 yeah. NBA teams so first part of the question is why NBA? Was that still the sport going back to your childhood that, that you loved? Uh, what was that about? Why NBA? And then the second part is like, I understand they're in a box in the attic, but do you ever read them? Like why keep them? I, I would just love to unpack that with you. Yeah. So uh, it was actually, I wanted to work in pro basketball. The reason it was basketball was because that's where I had, uh, connectivity and interest. So I was most interested in the sport. And uh, growing up, Bradley University was the only game in town in Peoria. So the Bradley Braves were sort of like the local pro team. And they were really good in my high school run. They were top 10 in the country. And I had a friendship with that team because my dad ended up being best buddies with their head coach, a guy named Dick Versace. Dick went on to be an NBA head coach 
and then worked at Turner doing television um, and was just a pretty well-known national NBA character. So Dick and I uh, had a friendship sort of independent of my dad's friendship. Dick always had friendships with people that were younger uh, as part of how he stayed young and still does. And um, so when I finished school, I just had this connectivity with Dick. He was an NBA head coach at the time. And then I felt like Peoria was sort of a hotbed of basketball as well. There was a lot of upcoming talent. And so I was just intrigued by that because I felt like if I was active in that ecosystem, I could make something happen. And I didn't have any connectivity with the NFL or with any of the other major sports. And the rejection letters, you ever read them? You ever go through them? Why, why even keep them? Yeah, I don't know. I, I kept them because uh, that's a good question. Nobody's asked me that. Well, you know why I kept them. So, some, so I could say I still got them. And they obviously left an impression on me. Um, and I have not looked at them. I should. I know what box they're in. Yeah, I should go find them and just see who they're from. <laughs> I think, I think uh, you know, I had an upbringing where, like you, I didn't have a whole lot of adversity, a whole lot of tra trauma. I had a very healthy upbringing. And also, I remember getting cut from my freshman basketball team. And my mindset when I was a freshman in high school was like, F you, like you're lost. You get to miss out on this five foot five kid who <laughs> passed the ball, but, uh, you know, thinks he's pretty good at basketball because he's playing on the playground and beating people. But, you know, they probably knew what they were doing when they cut me. I don't think they really were losing sleep. But my mindset back then was very much like F you, like this is your loss. You know, I wasn't going to go to the coach and tell him like, what can I do to be on the team? I wasn't going to ask for feedback. It was very much F you. And as I've gotten older in my life, I think I've gotten, I got to a point at some point where I just sort of learned how to accept it rather than think of myself as a victim. And I think when I was younger, I definitely was like, this is BS. Like they're wronging me. It was very much victimized. Um, and then as I got older, I became more of like a survivor. I'm like, oh, it is what it is. You know, it happened, whatever. And what I've started to do as I got older is when I get rejected, what I do is I go on this massive journey to try to find out why and mm. try to learn and try to understand. And I have been rejected uh, over the last, in my adult life, over the last 15 years or whatever it is. And uh, I found that to be liberating in a lot of ways. It's like, okay, tell me why I got rejected. Let me learn from it. Let me grow. And I almost can become annoying to the people that rejected me because they're going <laughs> to hear from me, uh, like, what's going on? And I got rejected from a program, uh, uh, an academic program, and I did. I went and I met with everybody to find out more about the program, what they're looking for, why I might not have gotten in. And then when I reapplied, I got in. And so, I think how we handle adversity is really important. And I, I was just curious if keeping those cards was something in your mind, like I'll show you, like I'll remember this one day, like what, where you were like then and, and how you would think about it now. Yeah, I guess that's my telling that story is my not so subtle way of saying, ha ha, I made it. Um, it's definitely that. I, I don't remember being like, fuck you. I'm, uh, you know, I guess that had to be part of it, though. I mean, that had to be a major driver. I just, I just sort of, 
you know, people ask me all the time, kids do, you know, whenever I speak at a college or law school or something, and they'll say, well, how do I get into sports? And I always advise them just to, you know, stay patient because it likely doesn't happen at first. And then just find your own journey there, your own way there. And I was in a completely different sector, and but I just never took my eye off of what I wanted to do. And, you know, if you just stay, keep your eyes on the prize and don't see the obstacles in front of you, you can, you can, in America, you can do just about anything you want to do. Um, but you had this path, right? Where dad has a path for you. If you choose to take it, which is going to be lucrative, I'm sure it's going to be stable. Um, you know, it sounded like you were probably pretty good at it from the get go. So why not just stay on that path? Why veer into another lane? Because I, I wanted to, you know, that's where I wanted to go. I always wanted to be in pro sports. I was intrigued by the, the relevance of it, the perceived fun of it, um, the competitiveness. Uh, so I, you know, that was just the, I don't know. That's the way I was being pulled. And so, uh, that's where I went. <laughs> and to talk about how you transitioned from the, the law situation to breaking into, into sports. Yeah. So I had that flexibility I talked about where I could do whatever I wanted within reason. And I met with a former player from Europe, uh, an American player who had a lot of success in Europe, Mitchell Anderson. And he had connectivity in certain back where he played. He was big time in Italy and all over Europe. So we put together a concept of taking a free agent team from the Chicago area and flying back to Europe and competing in a friendly tour where at the end of that, we'd get guys jobs. And so it took me uh, almost two full years, but I finally got upper deck trading card company to be our sponsor. So we were the upper deck all stars was the name of the team. And they paid me enough to make it work because I couldn't finance it on my own. So uh, that was another big break. You know, big moment was when finally after banging the door down all these companies for how many for I think it was for 20 months you know to finally get the yes and the, to green light it so we did two of those tours uh, at the end of those two tours I represented 10 players um, mostly overseas in fact almost all overseas a couple guys made it back to the NBA and then I'd lose them as clients because you know they jump over to a real agent um, and so what that did was it got me quasi legitimate, at least in basketball. And it gave me something to talk about, you know, somewhere in that window of time. I mean, I became a certified agent with the players association, which you're required to do, but I also read and outlined the collective bargaining agreement. So I, I treated that like it was a textbook, you know, like a law school textbook. And I went through and I did a full written outline of that document to try to get an understanding for how it all worked and I don't know why I mean I just did it because I was trying to study and learn in that area and then so having spent all this time in the international scene uh, just make creating this fledgling little touring operation I don't think I could have done a third tour because it took so much energy it was just so hard with not a lot of reward so I did that. I read the collective bargaining agreement and then a billionaire fell from the sky. Uh, this guy, Mike Heisley, may he rest in peace. Mike went to Dick Versace, uh, that 
friend I told you about who was a former NBA coach and basically told Dick that it was Mike's dream to buy an NBA team. And he'd been watching Dick's basketball career while Mike had his business career. And he wanted to merge those forces together and, and go after an NBA team. Well, as it turned out, he was totally legit and real and a, a, a legit billionaire that was in heat to buy an NBA team. So Dick turned to me just because I had an understanding of how the NBA worked and he was, I was trusted to me and we uh, had another guy named George Andrews in the, in the group. And we started pursuing teams on behalf of this billionaire. And lo and behold, we bought the Vancouver Grizzlies for Mike Heisley. He bought them in uh, the year 2000 for $160 million. And I kind of leapfrogged everything up into then. I was assistant GM and legal counsel for the, for the Grizzlies when we went in as new management. So it was awesome. You know, what a, what a break. So there's a couple of things I want to, I want to chat about there. First of all, so the idea is I'm going to take these free agents that are not good enough to play in the NBA, put together an all-star team, go overseas and compete so that then those teams can sign these guys because they're good enough to play there and they're making decent money over there. Was that like the idea? Totally. Yeah, that was it. And so it was your way of trying to get to represent guys. It was a creative way for you to add value to the players because you're saying, Hey, you're going to come play with us and then we're going to help get you jobs over there. And then it adds value to the overseas teams because you're getting them access to see these guys up close and personal without them having to fly to the U S and try to find these guys. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, this was 1996, 97, 98. There's no, uh, the internet was just starting. So I started a website, but you know, there's no way you stream into any content. I remember taking VHS tapes over with me of all these players so I could hand out their tapes. So really it was a, it was a way to showcase these players that uh, teams otherwise wouldn't see. So a couple of my guys signed for this really rich guy in the Czech Republic of all places. And, uh, you know, they made six figures over there which was pretty good money back then um, on this team in really small Czech Republic because the, you know, the lead dog wanted, the lead owner wanted to make a splash. So that was the conceit behind the tour. Um, I knew I didn't want to do it long-term, but then it gave me just things to talk about. I'd invite NBA scouts to come to my practices before we left on the tour. Uh, and I gave me a chance to interface with those guys and, uh, it just gave me a little different story to tell. And at that time, were you thinking, I'm going to be an agent? That's what I want to do? Or are you still thinking, I want to find a way to get involved with an NBA team? Yeah, no, I never wanted to be an agent. And the more I got into it, the more I didn't like it. It was too, you know, as soon as you're the guy that you've done everything for and you have a great relationship with, all of a sudden he sends you a letter saying, you know, fi you're fired because somebody else got to him and told him this story and, you know, when that, that, when that happens, you're like, wait a minute, what? And that happened to me, which, you know, was a further uh, reinforcement that this didn't make a lot of sense long-term, but I didn't, I didn't know where it was going to go. I knew the tour would lead to something. Um, and, uh, certainly not knowing that a, a billionaire was going to come out of nowhere legitimately to buy an NBA team. You know, I had a, one of the best meetings I ever had was when I was probably 20, 25, 26, you know, I'm a young lawyer. And I went out with my godfather, 
Ed LaHood. And I, so I said, hey, Uncle Ed, you know, I, I really want to be in pro sports and how am I going to make this happen and all that. And what he gave me was, it was he called it Operation Leapfrog. He said, you, you can't slog your way through and you can't go in early and then just incrementally work your way through the whole thing because that's not you. You're not going to be able to do that. He's like, you got to figure out a way to leapfrog to the, up to the top. And, uh, you know, he didn't have a playbook for how to do it, but he gave me that theme. And that's what was so interesting about what then happened is I found my way to that reality. And there's so much of that. If you just set your vision on what you're trying to accomplish, it'll find you. And in this particular case, there's no way I could ever predict it how, but it, it but it worked. So that's so paradoxical to the advice you're giving young people, which is be patient, just keep going, keep going, keep going. And then your your uncle's your godfather is saying, Hey, you need to find a way to leapfrog because you're not gonna be one of these people that's gonna just be able to sort of work your way up slowly but surely. Uh, it's, it's that's kind a of good point. You know, I, I I should add the leapfrog part to what I say to these kids because they do go together for me. I mean, it's but I, it was both, you know, for me, it was just like, be patient on figuring out a way to leap in there. Don't, you know, I, I didn't go to the salt mines and work my way through that way. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's basically patience and persistence. Like we can have both of those so I can be patient, but still knock on the door every day and just persist every day. I can be yeah. patient, right? I get the rejection letters. Okay. I got this rejection letter that happened. Uh, and I can still persist. And I think a lot of times people stay patient and as a result, they don't persist or they stay persistent and they don't have any patience. And so it sounds like you mix both of those and that's where, and then, and then you get some luck, right? Like this, this guy comes along and provides you an opportunity that's, that's not that normal. And so all of a sudden you leapfrog to being a trusted confidant and adding value. I'm sure your, your law degree, which I'm sure in the CBA, like you said, you're, you're reading that. And I'm sure you're helping him as he's figuring out how to buy a franchise and then move a franchise. And yeah. one of the things I wanted to chat with you about is Vancouver as a city today has become a, a massive destination for people. It's a beautiful city. There's a lot going on there. I think uh, it's always in talks for potentially an NBA team going back there. Um, yeah. At the time, the thought of moving Vancouver to Memphis, try to explain that to people that might not have been around for, or, you know, really understood back then what was going on and the dynamics there. Yeah. So that team was struggling. It was in trouble. The, the owner of the team was sort of the reluctant owner of the team. He actually was the reluctant owner of even the Canucks at that point. And the Canucks were in cahoots, were, were co-owned. The Grizzlies, the Canucks, and the stadium or the arena itself were three assets owned by the same person. And he spun off the Grizzlies looking for somebody who cared more about basketball. So when we went in, uh, the future of basketball in that part of Canada was not strong. It's a, it's a wonderful city. And it was relatively well supported, but the at the time, the exchange rate, the whole country was about two thirds. The exchange rate was 66% of the U.S. dollar. So we were taking in Canadian dollars at 66 cents and paying out American dollars. So that put things a little bit upside down. And there just wasn't the residents, there wasn't the corporate base that you had in Toronto because Toronto and Vancouver came in at the same time. So Toronto 
was embedded with the Maple Leafs, still is, and has done quite well. Vancouver was more on an island and didn't really have connectivity with the marketplace as strongly. So when we bought the team, the expectation was we were likely to try to move it. But the problem was no team had moved in forever. And David Stern, with the commissioner at the time, was very publicly outspoken about not wanting any franchises or teams to move. Uh, and we were the first one then that did move. But we went in there with the intention of trying to do all we could to make it work. It just very quickly was apparent that it was a path towards just hemorrhaging money. And our owner, Mike Heisley at the time, just said, enough's enough. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explore every opportunity in America to take this team back to a different location. So he selected Memphis, um, worked out a hell of a deal there where he got a significant investment from local folks. He got the city and the county to pay for an, a completely new state arena, 100% financed by them. And then FedEx signed up for a naming rights deal before we ever got there. So all these foundational pillars that you look for were established day one. And we ultimately, after one season only, relocated to Memphis. And at that time, are you most interested in the business of sport, the basketball side? Because uh, for those that don't really follow this stuff, there is a separation in organizations and sometimes they can blur together, but there's like a basketball operation side where you really have the people that are in charge of, you know, who's going to be coaching the team, who are the players that are involved, the training staff, all the basketball operations. And there's this yeah. whole business side, which is really what you're talking about with this move. You're talking about naming rights. You're talking about an arena, um, sponsorship. Uh, you know, it's, it's a big business. So where were you at, at that time as far as your interest? What were you most excited by? I was 95% in the mine shaft of basketball operations. My value add was that I understood the rules and I was sort of a salary cap expert or a capologist. And, I, you know, I learned that on the job. Uh, the guy, George Andrews, I mentioned earlier, sort of had more experience in that space and really helped me. And I picked up a lot. And then my value add was to sit in all the basketball discussions and always view it through the salary cap lens. And that gave us a competitive advantage because at the time there weren't many of me like that embedded in all the discussions. Most of the time you had the coaches or the scouts just making pure talent decisions and then going to the lawyer down the hall or calling the league office and saying, does the deal work? So I was in there to say, don't waste time on that. It'll never work. Or let's think strategically, you know, this particular team needs to shed this much amount of salary for this reason. And if they do, they'll be willing to, you know, move that player. You, if, if you, then we were able to be opportunistic and go present deals that way. And it really worked in our favor. So I had a 5% curiosity about the business side of things. And so I spent some time liaising with the business operations on behalf of basketball operations. And over time, uh, I did that and I absorbed a lot and understood a lot of what was going on in that world. Although, and, and that's what I do now, right? I preside over both sides of LAFC both business operations and soccer operations. Uh, but I really didn't know the nuts and bolts of how challenging and difficult the business side of things is until I got, you know, until we had to build this here. 
And we're going to definitely get to that. And it is interesting though. I think as sports has become more sophisticated, you see a, a, a lot of teams valuing both and valuing people that can play in both sandboxes and not necessarily siloing them. And I remember doing telemarketing and selling sports tickets in the, in the summer one time. And the assistant GM of the team I was working for came in to the telemarketing room and said, Hey, if you guys need anything, I'm happy to jump on a phone with any of your people and, you know, help you sell tickets. And it is an interesting component to sports business is that the more tickets you sell, the more money you got, the more money you got, you can go get better talent. Uh, the better talent you have, the, you know, the more tickets get sold. And I've always wondered like these probably should be more integrated because they can complement each other. But you did see it certainly, at least when I watched maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was definitely a, a silo as far as how it, how it works. Do you think it should be more integrated or do you think, Hey, once again, stay in your lane, stay in your lane or a little bit of both? Uh I think definitely a lot of both. I think integration of the whole operation is a key to sustainable success. Uh, I, now, that being said, the story in, in San Antonio with the Spurs, the basketball operations just sort of hums and does what they do. There's more integration happening now. In the Patriots, with their sustainable success, they've been very sort of uh, hunkered down. And, you know, Belichick puts up walls, takes care of everybody inside those walls. Uh, you know, I believe if you can have a, a more healthy blend where there's uh, more integration, more alignment, you just create a much, you create a very good culture. I'm, I'm not saying the others aren't. I'm saying that's just my personal belief. And the way we behave here at LAFC is we've got a real open, transparent, uh, healthy dialogue. We've got a great coach who's willing to share and be a part of it. Phenomenal GM. So it's usually on the sports side of the house that you need to have that kind of buy-in. Every business executive in the world would like to be a part of the sports side and be supportive and help. Um, but uh, as we saw even today with Magic Johnson and his comments, uh, when the lines get blurred, sometimes folks on that side of the house don't like it. You mentioned the the Spurs and the Patriots, and those are probably the two organizations that you think of in sports that have been the most consistent with sustaining success and that they sort of have siloed, hey, hey basketball ops do this, football ops do that, business this. Are there organizations that you look to now that are more integrated that you look at as a model and say, like, that's something that might be a way that we could do it with the soccer team or football team or whatever people call it. I call it soccer team. So, uh, yeah. but, but whatever it might be. Yeah, there are. Um, and you know, the, the truth is that the success of the on field or on court product is really what you're judged by. Um, and to your point, you can, and it covers up a whole lot of sins. You know, it's like winning's the great deodorant. So um, I think that uh, that's still the most important thing. And you, you have to have capable and versatile and talented leaders in that space that can, that can deliver that product. That's, that's always first and foremost. And then the more you can have organizational alignment with it and around it, I believe the better. 
to create in, in case, you know, when things do go haywire and you do have some down years, um, that's what pulls you through it. Otherwise you just see a slew of turnover and chaos. So take me from Memphis to Portland and your journey in, in the basketball side of things and really, you know, rising the ranks or leapfrogging the ranks or whatever you want to call it and being embedded, especially with an organization like Portland. They're, they're playing in the playoffs now. There's a history of basketball in that city. For a long time, it was the only game in town, although the soccer team does inc- seemingly does incredible up there as well. Yeah. Um, but talk about what that was like and, and being – with the Blazers and, and what that experience was like for you? Well, so the Memphis years were interesting because we relocated after one year and then uh, we struggled in our first year in Memphis, but at least got the thing established and off the ground. And then uh, all of a sudden Jerry West came in as the president of basketball. So uh, the, the general manager at the time was let go. Jerry West comes in and Dick Versace slid down to take the general manager title. So all of a sudden I was working side by side with the Jerry West, which was amazing. So I had a five year run with Jerry that was just really, really interesting. And he had a a literal open door policy. You know, his door was open all the time and he was uh, nice enough to rely on me for what I could do to help him. And, and it was just, a tremendous experience that way through those five years. The transition to Portland was helpful because really my whole identity in the NBA was tied to the fact that I came in with Dick Versace and I came in, you know, just to that one operation. And uh, a guy named Warren Legary, who's a big agent for executives and coaches, I got to know and, and Warren offered to represent me if I wanted to leave and move somewhere else. And he paired me with Kevin Pritchard in Portland, who I didn't know at the time. I knew of him, but Kevin was just named the general manager with the Trailblazers at the time. And Warren felt, Kevin felt that he needed my skill set to complement him. So I had had enough years to, uh, you know, be worthy on my, in my own right to go help somebody else. So I got paired with Kevin, same age, uh, you know, sort of same point of our careers. We hit it off in a lot of ways and we just had a blast. And uh, I was able to go in there and be sort of Robin to his Batman, if you will, and try to, you know, do something to turn the jail from the jailblazers to turn that page and get into, you know, what became the Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge uh, years of success in the uh, late, 2000 it was like 07 8 9 10 those years um so that that was a cool experience and then got to work for and with paul allen who at the time was you know he's one of the richest people on the planet was certainly the richest sports owner and was willing to spend anything and uh and all that was just uh, portland was a neat place to live uh it was major blazer fever and we were sort of coming back from the ashes so we were uh, hot at the time. And it was, it was fun. So two basketball specific questions. One, Jerry West, what, what made Jerry, especially you mentioned having an open door policy, but this is a guy who's literally the logo in the NBA, one of the best players to ever play. And there aren't too many great basketball players who then go on to have illustrious careers in management. And 
for a long time, people looked at Jerry as the best general manager of all time. And so yeah. I'd like to start with Jerry and then I have a inside basketball question that I'm curious to get your thoughts on, but I'll save that uh, for after the Jerry question. Yeah, Jerry's so unique because he was so accomplished as a player for, for decades. And then uh, he did try to coach for a little bit and that, that wasn't a fit. And then he ended up in management and he had this, you know, sort of headline run as a manager, as a general manager with the Lakers because of the deals that he did, you know, the way that Showtime was constructed and so successful. And then the whole make of the Lakers around Shaq, getting Shaquille O'Neal to come there with Kobe Bryant, those signature moments. Jerry was great. He put in, he put in a hard day's work every day. I mean, he showed up at 8 a.m., win, lose, or draw. He was there till 5. Um, just eat, drink, sleep, everything basketball. Um, and uh, But what, what was most interesting about Jerry was just his his uh, celebrity and his stature. I mean, he it's just so weird to see sixty five year old men go fangirl when a guy walks in at lunch. You know, and for Jerry's whole life, when he walks in, it's the men in the room that go in the phase of life where I was with him. They just lose their their stuff. You're just like, and I'm like, I get a hold of yourself. But then you realize that there's been like at the time forty plus 50 years, 40 years of recognition of this person and a relationship with this person and admiring him. And so that was really interesting with Jerry. But, you know, I, I worked with Jerry. Hubie Brown was the coach that, that came in and, you know, iconic and just, you know, so talented. And I worked with Chuck Daly for five years. He was our special advisor. And Chuck, may he rest in peace, was just awesome. You know, was a great mentor and teacher. Uh, so it's been sort of a fun ride if I stack together these icons that I was able to, you know, share a part of my life with. It's really, really, I'm really lucky. And those people are really leaders of men in a lot of ways. And you mentioned mom had this passion for leadership and organizational development. What, what do you think makes a great leader? Huh. Um, I think it takes a level of, uh, well, first of all, vision and a defined way of expressing where, where you're going and what, you, what the goal is. There's an element of charisma with every leader of being able to just get people to gravitate or magnetically come towards whatever the objective is and, and, and give some version of themselves to that. I think leaders need to be intellectual, you need to be smart and bright and sharp and, and nimble. And then I think the best ones have a certain authenticity or integrity to who they are and to a, a mission bigger than themselves. Uh, there's a lot of great people that can drive results, but if they're tortured or, you know, they're just not happy people, you, we all have dealt with those folks and they eventually flame out or, or don't have any good personal relationships. I just believe that the really good ones have a true authentic uh, confidence in who they are and, and, a, and a belief in the mission and something bigger than themselves. If this gets too personal, feel free to just pass. But Jerry West also is known for talking about depression and talking about like his challenges uh, throughout his career. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking about him as well. And how did he show up and 
Um, was that something that you ever witnessed? And was he open about that back then? Or was that something that maybe he reflected on as he got older in his career? Well, he, uh, he wrote his book in the years after I was with him. Um, and I don't remember him being as, as open about that. Although Jerry was always pretty open about, about how he felt. And, you know, anybody who's worked with him will tell you he swings pretty wildly emotionally. Um, and was pretty transparent on all that. So, but we never, there was never any discussion, you know, he would talk about his childhood or he would talk about some of those elements that I think showed up as the core elements of, you know, in his book, the, you know, what formed him or made him into what he is, you know, I, he, he would talk about those, but I don't, I don't, rec- you know, we didn't have that, that layered a discussion or that deep a discussion around it. It's such an interesting aspect because now we've got Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, a lot of these guys coming out and saying, Hey, I'm struggling with, with something and mental health is becoming uh, a bigger priority. I, today I watched a BBC video with a bunch of, legendary soccer players who are talking about mental health and having conversations and difficult conversations. So it's interesting. Of course they are. Everybody does. Everybody, you know, let's all be honest. (laughs) It's okay. You know, figuring your way through it's the key. So that's what's, you know, it's good. If the big Titans, the big sports guys, you know, show their vulnerability, it's like, no one has ever been made fun of for showing their vulnerability because every single person out there, and I mean that literally, everyone has something they're struggling with. Yeah, I think, I think the people that do make fun of it, those are the people that I'm usually the most concerned about. Uh, I think when yeah. Joel Embiid lost in the playoffs, he started crying and you get onto the echo chamber that is Twitter and you see different responses and, and it can show the ugliest side of humanity. And then also like the most beautiful side of humanity. Uh, yeah. and you can see both, but it is an interesting time. And I just think it's interesting to hear all these people talk about Kevin Love and DeRozan. And uh, like, I hadn't even really thought about Jerry West until this conversation about him putting himself out there like that. And perhaps that was also a spark that has led to now us being more open and, and having, having these dialogues. It's, it's an interesting place to be. Um, okay. So, so you're now, you know, involved with the Blazers, you and Kevin are are running it. I'm curious when, when TV starts to grab you and, and why go that path and, and enter that space because Portland, you end up, uh, you know, that not working out. Um, Why not continue to stay in that, sort of basketball operation space. I would love to connect the dots as far as TV goes. And then I'd also love to learn more about your interest in ownership. And it sounds like the business side of sports, which was a 5% aspect has risen for you over the years. So I would love to just connect those dots. If if you could complete that for me. Yeah. So uh, what was the first part of it? The, uh, transition into TV and, and, and oh, yeah. why you decided to go down that path as a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for me, I always felt like my track was going to be, you know, the next goal was to be GM or president of basketball. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, in Portland, I ended up, we were, we were on the rise quickly and 
pretty highly regarded. So I had an opportunity. I actually got offered the general manager position in in Minnesota. I interviewed for it and got it and chose not to take it and signed a new three-year deal um, and had a title change in Portland, you know, figuring that what could go wrong. We, you know, we're rolling. There'll be other opportunities. I'm going to stay here. This is great. So uh, the reason I got into TV was honestly because Paul Allen on a Tuesday for reasons I still don't know or understand decided to fire me. And I walked into work and saw that Kevin looked just sick. I hadn't talked to him the whole night before. I couldn't reach him. And he told me that he said, Paul's going to fire you today. I'm supposed to fire you. And I was just like, what? Totally shocked. It was like, it was incredibly shocking. So in retrospect, I was the first of say seven or eight different sports executives that, that Paul went through a window where he sort of cleaned everybody out. Kevin was gone, you know, several months later. So what happened with the TV I, at the time, I felt like there was a, a place on TV for someone that could explain the business side of the deals, could explain the cap part of the deals. And that was in 2010. And it collided perfectly with LeBron's free agency the first time. So LeBron was a free agent. The NBA draft was coming and ESPN felt like they needed a cap person to explain something that could happen around the draft more than just the talent. And so I talked to the producers and, you know, they gave me a shot. You know, NBA players typically sign 10-day contracts. That's a term in the NBA where after a certain point, they'll sign a player to a 10-day. He gets 10 days pay guaranteed, and then after that, if he makes the team, he's on the rest of the year. Well, at ESPN, I signed a four-day contract. I signed for four days of work around that draft. And during the draft, Pat Riley made a big deal in Miami where he cleared the decks and started clearing space. And so I, I was there, and I went to the producers. I'm like, I know, I can explain this, I can explain this. So they came to me. Um, and Stuart Scott, well, he rest in peace, man, what a great guy. Stuart tosses it to me, and we were in the Madison Square Garden Theater, right? So we're in the theater, and I'm on this little perch off in one of those little old boxes off to the side. And they were broadcasting the show live to the New York City audience. And so Stuart Scott says, for more on this, we're going to go to Tom Penn. And right when the light comes on, and I'm holding on to the mic, right then I hear out of my right ear, who the fuck is Tom Penn? <laughs> and I'm like, the light's on, and I'm like, ding. <laughs> so I was able to explain what, what Riley was doing was clearing the decks so that he could get everybody out of there and he could go after all three guys, Wade, LeBron, and Chris Bosh. And that was the first moment where everybody went like, whoa. So I ended up working my way into a fifth day at ESPN, and on the fifth day, the trade machine or the uh, salary cap machine that had been created, we were able to get it to work and it worked on air. And then I, I never I stayed for eight straight days. I had LeBron going to every single team in the league. He ultimately signed in Miami. I flew out of there and I worked for nine years at ESPN. <laughs> When you when you get when you get that news with, from Kevin Pritchard that Paul Allen's gonna fire you today, I could tell that even rehashing that like that was that was a pretty massive moment. How quickly was it between that moment and the moment that you're on your four day contract? 
Uh, that was in, I think, March. And I think I agreed to go there in early June. So, I mean, I, the, the draft was in June. So it was probably 60 days or so. And what were those 60 days like? Can you, can you go back to that space and put yourself into how you felt and, and what that was like for you? No, it, was, uh, it was terrible. You know, it was super public. Um, I decided, you know, I took the high road, meaning I just sort of gave a statement that said I was really surprised and disappointed and, you know, meant no ill to anyone. And, and for whatever reason, there was a slow three weeks of news and it just wouldn't leave the news. There was, and people just kept coming forward with a bunch of nonsense reasons as to why this happened. A lot of rumor. And there were a lot of people that I think, uh, either didn't think favorably of me internally or were trying to do whatever they were trying to do with their own objectives or were doing damage control. So there was all sorts of just horrible stuff written, you know, that was wrong. It was just flat wrong. Um, and nobody could understand, you know, there had to be some real reason. There had to be a scandal <laughs> and there wasn't. And what I realized is the most impossible thing to do in life is explain the unexplainable. And I couldn't explain it at that point. Um, so that was hard, but I quickly realized that it was a big bounce opportunity. I feel like the harder you fall and the more traumatic the adversity, the bigger you can bounce. You just, it's just an inertia thing, a movement thing. I just felt like I had this chance to reinvent my life. I was 42 years old and I had the benefit of 27 months left on my contract. So when I, when I got secure and realized they're, they're definitely going to pay that off, it's not like they're going to come after that too. I had at least the security of that, which gave me the runway to do TV. And I figured I was coming back to the NBA and I almost did a couple times. Um, but I also started that sports summit in Aspen that brought together sports owners from around the world called the global sports summit. And uh, brought them there for a best practice sharing and an opportunity to network privately amongst themselves. And your dad came to that. He was great. Uh, it just totally broadened my network. So I worked on that for several years, putting that together and other sports summits. And uh, that all led then to this other opportunity that I got with LAFC. It's interesting because you, I love how you described it as a bounce opportunity. And if I go back to the rejection letters, that you got when you were in your twenties, like that didn't have as much bounce potential. Um, yeah. But you took those letters, you stored them up in, in the attic and maybe you'll read them after we finish this conversation to just see how, how okay. negative they were. Um, but I love this notion where you actually, there's a, there's a great book by a guy named Ryan holiday called the obstacle is the way. And I just bought it. I bought, bought it yesterday. Is it good? It's a good book. Easy read, easy read. And, uh, and yeah, I'll, I'll Actually, Phil recommended it based on his, when he called me about this, I said, give me three books. And he gave me that one. Well, spoiler alert. The, uh, the idea is that you go toward obstacles rather than, uh, you know, most of us, when we have an obstacle, we go away. And it's just interesting that you use this bounce and you said, Hey, there's actually an opportunity here because of this obstacle and I'm going to leverage it. And then because of that, uh, I love how you described it. So it's really cool. And then, well, yeah, what it is, is place, you know, your energy can go towards being victimized or it can go towards what's in front of me is the opportunity. 
And once, and I was way ahead of my wife on this one, right? She was, that was one of the big challenges was trying to, you know, I, I pretty quickly got to a new space and saying, all right, now my responsibility is figure out how to take advantage of this bounce and try to get away from the, uh, you know, the, the pain of it all. So um, anyway, that's just life, you know, and who knows what's next in that regard. For sure. And I, and I think that applies to everything. Um, you know, life doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. And you have this, this responsibility and this opportunity to take whatever comes and make the most of it. I love the idea that responsibility, if you break it down, you really get response ability and it's yep. not that clean cause it's spelled a little differently, but we can, we can massage the words and basically how are we going to respond? And there's an opportunity to either react or respond and reactions typically are impulsive. They're based solely on emotion. Uh, they're not necessarily logical or strategic and, and no. sometimes we just need to react, but a lot of times we need to be responsive rather than reactive. Um, and I love how you responded. And then I love that you became entrepreneurial and you, you also had this side project while you're at ESPN. And so you're still playing in, in different sandboxes. And so you meet a potential owner of a soccer team, someone who wants to own a soccer team. Talk about deciding to dive in. I think when we talked before this uh, call, you said, I'm spending 98% of my time on the soccer team. So talk about really going all in. And I know you still do some TV stuff with, with Turner, but talk about the idea of, I want to go all in on, on soccer uh, in Los Angeles. Yeah. So I, the, the sports summit business that we created was great because it created a whole different network and a whole different, it just broadened my horizons a ton. I got out of the, the basketball operations silo and I got up into overall professional sports and met a ton of people, all the best, most curious operators, you know, people that are just high achievers within that space. And, um, I got an email from a guy in Vietnam. Again, I had no designs on going to acquire, help, help buy a soccer team and run it. It was just, what it presented itself. And, uh, I got an email in December of 2012 from a guy who had been to my second summit. His name was Henry Wynn and Henry's a Vietnamese entrepreneur, American born, or Vietnamese born, American raised back in Vietnam. And he said, Hey, I met you at your last summit and I want to reconnect with you. Cause I think MLS is the right buy. And I've got a couple of Malaysian guys with me that want to invest. And we just think it's the right thing to do. Will you help us? So after meeting Henry and realizing they were for real and had sincere interest, we went about trying to find a big market team. 95% of the time, these things never work. You know, it just doesn't happen. Uh, but in this particular case, the stars aligned and we ended up putting together this group to acquire the, an opportunity to do a new team, a fresh startup team in Los Angeles. And I viewed Los Angeles as the number one market in the country for sure when it comes to pro sports and when it comes to soccer and the ability to, you know, you try to get Boardwalk or Park Place as an asset. This was maybe both. And it really worked for the guys from Asia because it's Pacific Rim oriented and, you know, it was proximate for them, direct flights, all that sort of stuff. So it worked and we got, and then, 
you know, as, as that group came together, we needed a local uh, face presence ownership. And the commissioner insisted on us having a significant local partner. And the dream local partner in my book was a guy named Peter Goober, who uh, is co-owner of the Dodgers, co-owner of the Warriors, had a, an illustrious career in, in the entertainment space and in music and television and film. And is just sort of an iconic guy here in L.A. that reinvented himself into being a sports specialist. He owned and operated a bunch of minor league baseball teams and sold them all for a record profit and then has now graduated to where his NBA team's about to go to the finals for the fifth consecutive year. Nobody's done that in modern times. So I'm partnered with Peter Goober with all these Asian investors to do a complete clean startup in the city of Los Angeles. It was like, whoa, I'll do that. That sounds really good. So just took the leap. And, you know, we were an idea four and a half years ago and we sprung into existence. It's just been a wild ride creating absolutely everything from scratch. What's different about this? So there, I would like to try to compare this compared to when you're in Portland and running the basketball team and when you're at ESPN and you're a performer uh, or even now when you're on Turner and you're a performer, walk us through those different hats and what they require from, from your standpoint? Well, totally different responsibilities. So you're right. As a performer, it's interesting. I have a lot more empathy for my actual players and coaches because when you're on air, you're only as good as your last segment, your last hit. And what you find is you're constantly looking for feedback or, you know, how am I doing? Some sort of, uh, sometimes it's recognition. Sometimes it's just feedback. Tell, Tell me how I'm doing because you know, you get judged on each of these sorts of things. You want to do a good job. So the TV part has become much easier over time because you just, with repetition, you get used to it. And it's a no pressure thing now because I can do it. And uh, I don't have any real responsibilities there. In my basketball operations role, I was deep in the, in the team operations silo. You know, I was just responsible for supporting all these decisions to make the team better and to win. We were measured by wins. And we were measured by how far we went in the playoffs and that sort of thing. Um, in this particular role, it's just a much more diverse, much bigger, bigger job. This was, this was a, a, a huge challenge to first assemble the group and then build an entire organization. You know, we had to do everything. We came up with our name. We came up with our colors, with our logo. We had to get the land under control. We had to design a stadium, which is just a kick-ass really cool stadium that is, sits in the heart of Los Angeles on this great land that we were able to get for 98 years and then build a training facility and assemble a whole team at coaching staff and now we've got 155 160 employees and we're you know we're relevant we're somebody in LA we're we're the best team in MLS at the moment by almost every measure and you know got a long way to go and they don't give out trophies in May but at least for the moment things have gone really well and we've got the future looks bright it's interesting because I think a lot of people listening to this at least I can speak for myself I can't speak for all of them there when you're good at something you have to make a decision like do I keep staying as a performer or do I take another leap to become a manager and you can take a salesperson right like a great performing salesperson 
do they stay in their lane, do their job, or do they become a sales manager? And yeah. as I hear you talk, it's on a much gr- grander level, but like basketball ops, it's like, okay, I know my job. I can do that job. Uh, ESPN or Turner, it's like, okay, I'm a performer. And now you really are having to really manage a hundred some people and manage uh, systems and operations and back to, you know, relying on maybe some of the stuff your mom was talking about with yeah. organizational development. And it's, it's different. And sometimes the best performers aren't always the best managers. And we certainly see this in sports, but it, it's the same in corporate. You see it all the time. You see these guys who can, the men and women who can crush it at their job, but then you elevate them and managing people is a whole different ball game. And I do think the, the qualities that are necessary to be a high performer are not necessarily the same qualities that you need to be a, a great leader. Uh, I, you can have both, but they're different. So I totally agree. What have you done to cultivate your ability to manage that, that much capacity and that much space? And, and what has helped you on your journey? You mentioned reading, you know, hey, Phil, give me three books. What else have you done to try to make sure that you have the headspace and the capacity to do a great job there? Yeah, so for me, luckily, it happened one day at a time and one moment at a time. I mean. It's very incremental and linear in terms of the way you just take one. It's like climbing a mountain. And I always felt like we were trying to summit Mount Everest. You know, we, we, and we were, there were just certain tasks ahead of you that would represent base camp one, then base camp two. And you just build up your capacity for doing things as you knock those, those key things down. I had a great mentor, a phenomenal mentor in Peter Goober still do he's he's just a uh, he's he's a savant when it comes to sports and entertainment and leadership and he's a great friend and and he was somebody I, I had the privilege to office with for over four years and just lean on him for all decisions big and small that was huge um, had a bunch of really good partners in this venture who all brought their value add and their expertise in a lot of areas where I didn't have it. And it was a real collaboration at that level, which is, which has been huge and still is, you know, on the personal development front, frankly, I I stalled a little bit. I got, I was tired at the end of this and uh, was once we opened the doors, I was struggling a little bit trying to find the joy in it all. And uh, (laughs) one of my partners, our partners here, is a guy named Tony Robbins. And I've gotten to connect with Tony, which is like the greatest privilege in my life recently. And I got to attend his Unleash the Power Within Summit that he did here in LA, his three-day intensive, immersive, incredible experience. You know, the end of night one, you walk on fire. So I did the fire walk and had this, you know, just awakening. Um, and so at the moment I'm living in that space after that awakening with just real excitement as to the next decade of my life and what's ahead of me and what I could accomplish if I want to, and what I can do to give back and continue to grow and contribute. So, you know, we're all a work in progress all the time. And the true measure of success is whether there's happiness and fulfillment at the end of the day. Um, you know, nobody wants to be the richest unhappy guy in the graveyard. 
and Tony's got this line where he says, uh, achievement without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. So it's not just about achieving things and uh, professionally and, and, and otherwise, it's about truly finding happiness and giving back to others and making a difference and having a purpose bigger than self. And that's easier said than done. So I'm still, I'm still on that journey. Well, you took the question out of my mouth, which is I, I was familiar with Tony Robbins' involvement and Peter Gruber uh, and him have been pretty open about their work together. So yeah. you took it out of my mouth. So thank you for that. And I think it's a beautiful place for us to wrap. And I just want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing and being vulnerable and honest. And I know there are a lot of people that are either interested in the sports industry who listen to this podcast or interested in uh, leadership and interested in uh, basketball specifically. So I appreciate you sharing. And I know you mentioned St. Jude earlier. Uh, can you promote St. Jude, promote LAFC, give a megaphone to anything that you think deserves a megaphone that you would want to promote? If people want to follow you online, where can they do that? Just whatever you want to promote, I'm going to give you uh, some space here to do that. Yeah, thank you. Well, with regard to LAFC, you know, now everybody knows what we are. I don't need to promote it anymore other than to say if you're ever in or around Los Angeles, come to a match because it's just a party. It's so fun. It doesn't matter if you like soccer at all. Our audience, our supporters, they sing the entire match. It's, a, it's an experience you cannot imagine, and I guarantee you it will be totally satisfying. So enough on that. On St. Jude, you know, this is St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, it's 100% free hospital where the mission is to save lives and, and cure children or to find cures and save lives. And it's a research institution that's designed solely to catastrophic diseases affecting children, mostly cancer, what it's made its name for. It's had just an incredible amount of success. You know, when the doors opened in 1962, the cure rate for leukemia was 4%. That's blood cancer in kids. 4% was a death sentence. Now the cure rate at St. Jude is, take a guess. I have no idea. 94%. Wow. So it's just been massive. 90s, by the way. That yep. was not where I was going in my head. Yep. But uh, they, so they treat all the toughest and hardest stuff, and it's 100% free. It's all funded by the donations of the public. The families never pay for anything whatsoever. They don't play for, pay for an airline ticket, a meal, a radiation treatment, a copay, a, uh, in a, a single prescription. It's just this amazing place. And uh, the spirit of the kids there fighting and surviving and thriving. It's just the great privilege of my life being associated with St. Jude. And I've been on the board for almost 20 years now, coming up on that soon. And what percentage uh, of their uh, funding comes from donations? Well, all of it, other than, um, you know, you get grants from the government for certain research programs and such. Uh, but it's a, it's all funded by, you know, the general public. Got it. And it's the largest healthcare charity in the world now and making huge discoveries and strides just le recently announced that they found a cure for the bubble boy disease. And uh, that's just a huge breakthrough in science that'll, you know, for those poor kids that, are born with that deficiency, they can now fix it, which is amazing. 
Amazing. And if people want to follow you and what you're up to, how can they do that? Uh, you know, I'm not active on social that much, but uh, they can just, uh, I don't know, Google me. <laughs> All right. I, we'll, we'll find something to promote socially as it relates to you. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levitz and Instagram intentional underscore performers. And then you can go to the website intentionalperformers.com, which is where all these conversations are held and stored. Tom, great to get to know you. Thank you so much for the time. Um, looking forward to seeing what the rest of the season looks like for the football club. And uh, uh, thank you again for uh, sharing your story. All right, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And I wanted to do something sports related. So my goal coming out of law school was to work in pro sports. I just didn't have the connections to do it. I actually still have the box of rejection letters sitting in my uh, attic. You know, the old school rejection letters with the Denver Nuggets colorful logo on the top and so on and so forth. I kept them because um, I, you know, sent out whatever it was, 28 or 30. I don't know how many teams there were then. I can't remember, but I got that many back.